lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, today's show is all about schoolyard gardens, and it's featuring my guest, Rick Sherman. Rick is the farm-to-school school garden coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education, and he is a gem. He does a great job. He's got a lot of heart behind this issue and hustle, and that's part of the reason why it's so darn successful, and that's coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, we'll just cover a few housekeeping items. If you're not a member of the Still Growing Podcast listener community on Facebook, I would love for you to join for free. Just head over to Facebook and then search for the group for our show. It's called the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you go to Facebook and you look in the search bar, type that in, Still Growing Podcast Group, and then our group will pop right up. Sometimes when you do a search like that in Facebook, Facebook, the page, the business page for the show will also pop up, but that is not the group. So you're going to want to make sure that you're looking at the group and then request to join. Another easy way to find the group on Facebook is to go to my website. It's sixfootmama.com. It's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And if you go up to the menu, you'll see Facebook group right there and you can click and that will take you directly to the Facebook group as well. And sometimes that's just a little bit easier for folks. Now, once you are a member of the group, there are some great benefits, including quality content, because all of the posts that are featured in the Garden News Roundup of every show end up making it into the group. And then there are extra posts that also go into the group that are very beneficial. And you get to interact with guests of the show. In fact, when I created the podcast group, that's exactly what I envisioned, that there would be a place online where guests that have been on the show and listeners of the show could interact with each other and continue the conversation. In fact, I know Rick Sherman is in the group. He joined the group this week as well in anticipation of today's episode coming out, and he was happy to do that. So bring your schoolyard garden questions to the group, and I'm sure Rick will be thrilled to interact with you and answer any questions you might have. You can also see some really great posts and commentary between listeners and guests. This past week, Joanne Scott Brunker had posted a question about preserving your garden harvest. And specifically, she was asking about onion, squash, and garlic, and how will they stay good all winter in your basement? And so she was directing this comment toward Megan Kane because she had listened to the episode where I interviewed Megan. That's episode 557. Megan, of course, is the great genius behind the Creative Vegetable Gardener. She's got her brand new Smart Start Garden Planner book out. And she also wrote this wonderful resource about preserving your garden harvest. And that was the focus of that episode. In any case, during that show, Megan regularly referred to going down to her basement and getting her squash and onions and garlic whenever she needed them for cooking throughout the winter season. 
Another member of the group, Patricia Chandler Newport, she's a member of the Listener Advisory Board, had chimed in and said, you need to cure those things before putting them into storage. And Megan chimed in and said, yes, you are correct. Patricia is correct. You have to cure them. And so she shared this really great blog post that she had done about curing garlic on her website. And she said that onions are pretty similar, but she spreads them out on a rack instead of hanging them. And here it is, March, and Megan is still eating onions and garlic from last summer. So that post is in the group. And if you're interested in finding it on your own, you can go to Megan's website, which is thecreativevegetablegardener.com. Peter Langham of Atlanta joined the group a couple of weeks ago, and he shared a really great post here this morning, and it features his first gig installing and maintaining two demonstration plots in a community garden. And I think what made these plots extra extraordinary are the all the little touches. There's a very colorful trellis that was installed. And then there's these cute little garden markers that are made of wooden spoons that have been painted in vibrant colors to match the trellis. And then, of course, there's a huge metal rooster. And I just love those guys. I've got a soft spot in my heart whenever I see those. Anyway, Peter said the client is thrilled. And it was a really great share. And I think it's very inspirational for anyone that's creating gardens for other people. It's a good reminder that whenever you use artistic license, you can take that project up a notch. The client in this case was thrilled and I can totally see why. Well, I want to make sure that I welcome new members into the Facebook group. And this week, I would like to welcome Chris Lawrence, Lynn Moss, Marty Shrek, who works as a landscaper and gardener at a resort, Natasha Onishak, Natasha, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing your last name correctly, but when Natasha joined the group, she said, thanks for adding me to the group. And she said she can't wait to get started in the garden, as you can see from the way I plated up my kids' supper tonight. And she did this amazingly creative thing. She took hash browns and cucumbers and squash and looks like a little salami and carrots and made this cute vignette with food on her kids' plate. And it looks like a flower pot with flowers growing out of it. So talk about artistic and talented. I thought you did a great job, Natasha. I'd also like to welcome Tammy Seeland. She's the owner at Dirty Hands Ranch. David Lawson, who works at Peabody's Paradise LLC Fish and Aquatic Plants. David shared a picture. He's got two small greenhouses that he's currently growing using hydroponics, rain gutters, and self-irrigation methods. And I tell you what, he's got quite the setup if you take a look at that image. A warm welcome to Beth Wall, Donna Meyer-Hull, Daniel Persons, of course, Rick Sherman, the guest of our show today, Vicki Vilci, Justin Smock of Seattle, Washington, Sarah Baker, who works at Maple Row Farm, Lisa Moore of Cleveland, Ohio, Naomi Nordell, Irene Choras Sakiris, Christine Rudelak, and Mackenzie Thompson, who works at DreamWorks Animation. Welcome, you guys. I'm so thrilled you're in the group. It's the only place that I go to pick winners for any giveaways that are associated with the podcast. Occasionally, I will post Facebook videos there as well. Not too many. 
And of course, I curate content for you guys throughout the week. I share all of those posts in the Facebook group, and then a portion of those get used for the Garden News Roundup. So if you're listening to the Garden News Roundup, you don't have to take notes. You can just join the Facebook group. Everything that I talk about in the Garden News Roundup is for sure in the Facebook group, in addition to a lot of other content as well. Well, by the time this show airs, it'll be March 10th. We'll just be two days away from Daylight Savings. And many folks will be putting together some containers with annual plants for spring. Up here in Minnesota, we need to be thinking about annuals that can tolerate some cold. So, of course, everyone immediately thinks about pansies. But don't forget about other cold-hardy annuals like Lobelia, like Alyssum, and Lysimachia. Those would be all wonderful choices if you're in a colder climate or if you're experiencing colder temperatures this spring. And before I forget, I want to make sure I recognize the members of the Facebook group that volunteered to be in the lab. That's my listener advisory board for this quarter. And they are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Fairbanks von Aachen, Patricia Chandler Newport. She's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants. And Peggy Ann was also a guest of the show on episode 553. Anyway, these gals have been giving me tremendous feedback, more than I could have ever imagined, and I really can't thank them enough. I've got upcoming rotator cuff surgery scheduled for the 20th of March, and their input is going to make it possible for me to have new content for you during my recovery time. So I owe them a huge debt of gratitude. Thank you so much, lab members. All right, it's time for the Garden News Roundup, and we're going to start with a guest update from Benedict Van Heems. Ben was in the show back in episode 540. It was the double feature show with Laura Eubanks of Design for Serenity, and then Ben with The Big Bug Hunt. And Ben sent me an update on the app, which is called The Big Bug Hunt. It's a major citizen science project that tracks garden bugs to identify how and when they spread. The next time you're online, just search up Big Bug Hunt and maybe bookmark that so that you can help create a pest alert system that will warn gardeners in your area when pests are heading their way. Anyone can take part and reporting a bug takes seconds. And finally, the Big Bug Hunt is now in its second year. And it's already identified patterns in the way some major pests spread. And there's a quote from the project coordinator, Jeremy Dorr. He explained that last year they received more than 11,000 reports worldwide. With the big bug hunt now firmly established, they expect to receive even more. And the more reports they get, the stronger the data and the sooner they can turn the results into an invaluable service for gardeners. Now, you don't have to register. You just have to go to bigbughunt.com to report a bug, and that takes just seconds. I've tried it myself. It's very, very easy. And the other thing I think you'll find very useful is that if you have a pest, the website includes detailed pest identification guides, and then it also offers effective treatment and prevention ideas. So you have the option to sign up for updates, bug-busting emails, and free downloadable charts, but you don't have to. You can simply go there, look at the resources, take what you need, report a bug, hopefully, report a pest issue if you have one. 
is just a great resource for gardeners. And again, the website is bigbughunt.com. I have a number of posts that made their way into the sustainability category this week. The first is from onegreenplanet.org, and they shared seven basic composting secrets for better results. And of course, topping this list is a reminder to use plenty of carbon material. Now, carbon material usually comes in the form of leaves and large items like paper, cardboard, and wood shavings. So it's important to shred that carbon material. And my number one go-to for carbon material, of course, is leaves and leaf matter. The biggest misstep that people can make when they start composting is to put in too much nitrogen, Things like kitchen scraps and fresh grass clippings. So this was a very good overall general guide to get you started or a great reminder if you've already got composting underway. It covers a number of different points and it's a good read. RodaleOrganicLife.com shared a post called What Every Gardener Should Know About Mulching. They offered six ways to do it right. This was also a very good post, and I thought it complemented the One Green Planet post very nicely. Then Mother Earth News shared this really great post. It's called Nine Reasons Why Raising Ducks Might Be a Better Option Than Chickens. So if you've been toying with the idea of raising chickens, check this article out. You just might be persuaded to raise ducks instead. And then finally, Fast Coexist had a great article called The Future of Urban Farming Might Actually Be Suburban Farming. This is something I was talking about with folks who were at a conference I was at this past week. And this article profiles Bright Farms because the company realized that even if it built outside the city limits, even if it got away from urban farming and went to a more suburban farming model, it could still stay close enough that transportation issues would be negligible. Bright Farms sells its products in 150 stores in the D.C. market. And they said that being 30 miles out of the city is just as good as being in the city. So that's a great read as well. In the continuing ed segment, there is a book that I wanted to bring to your attention, and it's called Pacific Northwest Native Plant Lists for a Trouble-Free Garden. This is very well done, and it's a companion piece to Choosing the Right Plants, Natural Lawn and Garden Guide. I've been meaning to tell you about this for a while now, so this is the week I've got to talk to you about it. So I put it in the group. Go ahead and check it out if you're gardening in the Northwest. TheBalance.com shared their list for easiest flowers to grow from seed. They offer 14 different picks, everything from calendula to moss rose. So if you start flowers from seed and you're looking for some easy go-to tips, go check this one out. ModernFarmer.com offered up seven books that they're reading this winter. And their list includes the following, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees. It says anyone with a little outdoor space can lend honeybees a hand. This one is from the Xerxes Society, and it details the flowers, herbs, shrubs, and trees that attract pollinators. There's a book called The Unsettlers. It's by author Mark Sundin. And he weaves together stories of three different couples. First, there are organic vegetable growers in Montana, off-the-grid Missouri homesteaders, and then urban farmers in Detroit. That one captured my attention, and I just might have to reach out to Mark and see if he'd be willing to come on the show. They also recommended a book called Food Fight. This is a big-picture look at genetically modified organisms 
and it's balancing opinions on all sides of the debate. There is a cookbook called Bowls of Plenty, and it's by Carolyn Carino. She's a James Beard award-winning author. Then, of course, there's Josh Volk's Compact Farms. Josh was just on the show in episode 560. That was last week. Bay Area landscape designers Stephanie Bittner and Alethea Harampolis have written a book called Harvest, and it offers unconventional uses for nearly 50 garden plants. And then last but not least is Florit Farms Cut Flower Garden. This is a very pretty book, but it's also very practical, and it's by Erin Benzakine. She's the rock star behind Washington State's Florit Farm. So those were the seven books that were recommended by ModernFarmer.com for reading this winter. Winter's almost over, so we've got a little bit of time left if you guys want to grab a few of these and get them read before spring comes or, hey, read them throughout the rest of the year. Okay, two posts to go in the continuing ed segment. Claire Lower wrote in Lifehacker.com a clever way to store fresh herbs and a rolled up paper towel for easy access all week long. That was a nice little post. And then Peregrine Farms, they were one of 15 farms featured in Josh Volk's Compact Farms. I've started following them on Facebook, and they have really, really great posts and a wonderful blog as well. Anyway, they shared a wonderful post about the bee population and the fact that they're going to be swarming this time of year. So they wrote that spring is coming, it's arriving ahead of schedule, and that means that honeybees are getting ready to swarm. And swarming is how bees naturally create new colonies. It's good for bee populations and good for the environment. And then they offered a few tips if you happen to encounter a swarm in the coming months. And top of mind is do not panic, do not spray, don't observe, just get out of there. And do contact a beekeeper if the swarm lands someplace where you feel they will not be safe or if it makes you feel unsafe. Beekeepers, of course, are happy to remove it. So I'm hoping that this year we don't encounter any articles in the news about people calling the fire department or the police department and then having these swarms killed with spray or mishandled in that way. I'm hoping that people have gotten more educated around this and that they know to contact bee squads in their area to take care of these issues. But it's so helpful if you continue to spread the word. So if you're listening to this and you encounter someone who comes across a swarm or a bee colony in an area that makes them uncomfortable, please encourage them to contact a bee squad in your area. And better yet, have that number handy. Have it in your phone, have it with you on your device so that you can easily refer people to that resource, whether it's just verbally giving them the number or even just forwarding the information to them. Just a practical way we can help save bees. Okay, the last post that was in the continuing ed segment, boy, we had a lot in the continuing ed segment this week. This was actually featured in a newspaper, and it was kind of an opinion piece, and it was about the curse of the Bradford pear. And it started with this video, and the video features landscaper Durant Ashmore. And he begins by talking about the Bradford pear tree. And he said, you know, some folks consider it to be an attractive tree. In fact, in the spring, it's quite pretty. It's got all of these beautiful white blossoms. That's what draws people to this tree. And in the video, he's standing in a neighborhood where the developer chose to plant Bradford pears 
all along the city street in this development. It's really, really tragic. Durant says the Bradford pear is one of the most unsafe trees that you can plant. He said they are inherently dangerous, they split uncontrollably, and he's standing in front of a Bradford pear showing how all of those limbs kind of come out of the main trunk. And then he demonstrates how none of them have substantial amounts of connective tissue holding them together. And that's how they become inherently dangerous. He said it's just a matter of time before they split apart. But that's not even the worst part. The worst part about them is that they have this curse. They produce an unlimited amount of calorie pairs, which choke out other plants and trees in the area. And I'm going to read you a little snippet from this newspaper article because I think it's so important for people who have Bradford pears or who maybe are considering buying a Bradford pear to get this information. Here's what it says. The problem is that these trees are in fact not sterile. No two Bradford pears will ever reproduce among themselves, but they do cross-pollinate with every other pear tree out there, including the Cleveland Select pear trees that were meant to be the salvation of flowering pears everywhere. The introduction of other pear varieties has compounded the problem to the point where it is almost too late to rectify. Because of the cross-pollination problem, pear trees have now proliferated exponentially across our environment. And to make matters worse, the evil offspring have reverted to the ancient Chinese calorie pears, which form impenetrable thorny thickets that choke the life out of pines, dogwoods, maples, redbuds, oaks, and hickories, etc. So when you see those fields of white flowering trees, please don't get giddy with excitement over pretty white flowers. What you are looking at are calorie pears destroying nature. Calorie pears have four-inch thorns. They can't be mowed down. Those thorns will shred John Deere tractor tires. They can only be removed by steel-tracked dozers, decreasing the value of agricultural or forest land to the tune of $3,000 per acre. And make no mistake about this, that solitary Bradford pear growing in your yard is what caused this problem. Your one tree has spawned hundreds of evil progeny. If you don't believe that, just take a little ride and notice all the white flowering trees blooming these days. The closer they are to the ornamental Bradford pear trees, the thicker they are. So if you want to save the world, cut down your Bradford pear trees. I could not be more serious about this. And that's the end of the piece that I wanted to quote for you. So this is, again, a very strongly worded piece by Durant Ashmore. But I think it's great advice. And that's why it made the continuing ed segment this week. There were also a number of posts that made it into the DIY segment. The first is a fun post that was featured in survivallife.com, and it's how to make egg carton seedlings. So it shows how to start seeds in eggshells and egg cartons. It's just cute as a button. And if you've got little kids, this would be a super fun way to start germinating seeds indoors. I think this adds that little cool factor that draws kids in. I've seen this post on Pinterest as well. It's very visual. It's very, very pretty. This post was written by Stacy Bravo. 
And even though it was from a year ago, it's one of the most searched posts this spring. And I can see why, because it's adorable. And then this past week, RecycledPalletIdeas.com shared a great post that was called DIY Wooden Pallet Garden Path Ideas. And it showed all of these amazing garden paths that were made with wood from pallets. You have to see it. But if there's a way that you can get your hands on a lot of pallet material, making these types of paths might be a great option for you. There are a lot of unique ideas here with these pallet pathways, and they're so pretty. Housebeautiful.com shared a really clever idea this week, and it was how to easily turn a busted refrigerator into a rustic outdoor bar. I know this one is going to get a lot of hits because it is just so darn cute. My only caution here is that if you're going to use a full-size refrigerator, which I think it shows in one of their images, to be really careful with that around the kids because you don't want a child to be climbing inside a refrigerator and getting stuck in there. But they made this look super attractive. It's very, very cute. It's a wonderfully creative repurposing idea. Anyway, go check it out if you're interested in putting together some type of outdoor bar in your outdoor living space this summer. All right, just a few left to go here in the DIY segment. Mother Earth News has a two-part article that's called Beginning Your Medicinal Herb Garden. They just shared part one. And they talk about the things that you're going to want to plant if you're interested in doing medicinal herbs. This article starts out with chamomile, echinacea, and lemon balm. And part two will have even more. And there's tons of information here about these herbs. Then Mother Earth News also shared this really awesome post. It was by Pam Dolling, and it's called Using Open Flats or Seed Trays to Grow Sturdy Seedlings Easily. This one appealed to me. This is more along the lines of what I do when I'm starting seedlings. I love using open flats. Of course, it's a great way to avoid adding to the problem of plastic trash and becoming a little more self-reliant in terms of your gardening equipment. And then, of course, Pam points out that you end up growing stronger plants because you give them a larger compost volume than plastic plug flats or cell packs provide. So that was a compelling post. And then finally, here is a fun post that I wanted to tell you about last week, and then it kind of slipped my mind. So I'm glad I stumbled on it again. And it was talking about how hula hoop wreaths are going to be big this spring. And this is from countryliving.com. And the title of the article is called A Gorgeous New Wreath Trend is Going to Take Over Neighborhoods This Spring. And then it shows all of these images of spring wreaths that have been created using hula hoops. I know it sounds completely wacky. You have to read the article, but I want to make one of these. I actually think they're beautiful and I want to give it a try. I think I can pull it off. So I'm going to make one and then I'll take a picture and I'll post it in the Facebook group. And if you make one, do the same. I'd love to see how yours turns out. All right. In the plant spotlight segment this week, there were two plants that caught my attention. The first was this post that was shared by Gardenista, and it's featuring Cape gooseberries. So these Cape gooseberries have an upright, slightly gangly growth habit, and the berries are relatively large. And unlike ground cherries, Cape gooseberries are tart when they're raw, and that usually makes them good partners in salads where lemon works. They pair awesome with avocado, and the tartness balances the sweet. So they're also wonderful in jams and pastries. 
And then the other plant that made it into the plant spotlight this week is wild lettuce, which I just found out has been used as a sedative and painkiller for millennia. It looks very similar to thistle and dandelion, but it has potent properties which can replace synthetic painkillers. In fact, it's often referred to as the poor man's opium. Even today, the distilled water from this plant is used as a mild sedative in France. So there's a lot of interesting things to read about with this wild lettuce. It's kind of fascinating. So give that a read. There were four posts that made it in the news segment this week. The first is a botany event at the University of Toronto that is showing off Canadian artists' flower power. So this article features some very amazing botanical artists. So if you love that kind of work, if you love those botanical illustrations, this article might introduce you to some of the new artists in this genre. Yesterday, the Washington Post shared an article that was called What Climate Change Has to Do with the Price of Your Lettuce. This was by Caitlin Dewey, and she reports that the unusual weather in the Southwest could cause a nationwide salad shortage later this month. The shortage, which was first reported by NPR, is the result of two separate phenomena in Arizona's Yuma County and California's Salinas Valley, the two places where the United States grows most of its leafy greens. In Yuma, the lettuce harvest, which usually runs from November to April, wound up early because of unusually warm weather. And in Central California, which typically picks up the harvest once Yuma is done, they had heavy precipitation, and that's delayed some of their plantings. Along the same lines, thinkprogress.org reported this week that winter is not coming. We need winter. And the article features how 2017's early spring is bad news for the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. I know up here in Minnesota, we've had some 60-degree days in February. That is very unusual, and there's not a drop of snow on the ground right now in March. And then finally, there was a post that I saw on Facebook that was sharing something that was in the news in Decatur. And it's talking about how invasive bushes in Decatur are killing cedar waxwings. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how ewes were killing big game in Idaho. Apparently, cedar waxwings are being harmed by eating nandina berries, which is a non-native plant that has some invasive qualities. So this article is from the Decatur, Georgia newspaper, and just a reminder, if you love birds, if you love cedar waxwings, they're so beautiful, and you have this plant, just cut the berries off this week and bag them up for the trash can because cedar waxwings are in the area. There are two folks that made the Dream Guest segment this week. One was featured in Vice.com, and he's known as Wildman Steve Brill. He's a forager and punk naturalist. And this article shows him eating all kinds of wild weeds. This was actually from last April. But for the past 36 years, the self-taught forager, tour guide, and author has been bringing people into the woods to show them food they can easily find in the wild to eat or cook. And he likes to say, the whole world is my garden. And then the other dream guest is Kelsey Miller Anderson. This is an article that I stumbled on from CBC News out of Edmonton. And she's a very fascinating woman. The headline of the article is called Dandelion Fungi Could Help Clean Toxic Oil Sands Tailings. And I think what makes this article so fascinating is not only this discovery, but the woman behind the discovery, Kelsey Miller Anderson. And I want to read you the first couple of paragraphs of this article. 
so you get a feel for how significant her work is. It says Kelsey Miller Anderson's obsession with science began with a single dandelion sprouting from the sun-baked pavement of her back alley. Wondering how the weed managed to flourish in such harsh conditions, Anderson, then just 15 years old, oh my gosh, you guys, she's 15, she set out to solve the mystery. She built a makeshift laboratory in the basement of her Calgary home, and then she started experimenting on the prolific bloom. And what she found could help eradicate one of the oil sands industry's largest environmental problems, the toxic tailings ponds created by the bitumen mines. She said, I did some research and I actually discovered that dandelions are accumulating a fungi into their roots. And it's this relationship between the fungi and the dandelion plant that enables them to really grow anywhere. And as she watched the dandelion fungi devour the hydrocarbon-rich soil, she realized that it could be a powerful reclamation tool. So after seven years of research and field trials... Her method now takes the form of what she calls a mycomat. So it's much like a piece of sod. The fungi-laden mats are laid out on top of the tailings before releasing powerful enzymes that make a meal of hydrocarbons. The mats are biodegradable, so there's no additional cleanup. And unlike current remediation methods, which usually involve the excavation and removal of contaminated soil, her process is all natural and fast. So that's why Kelsey made my dream guest segment this week as well. In the science segment this week, straightstimes.com shared a new technology that freezes blooms so they stay fresh for a decade. This article outlines a new technique. It's a quick freezing technique that removes the moisture in the blooms and then they're preserved for up to 10 years. Apparently, they are papery to the touch and they look like artificial flowers. But if you sprinkle some water onto the petals, they will close only to open up again when they dry up. It's very cool. And then finally, the BBC shared a post that's called Five Things You Always Wanted to Know About Soil But Were Too Embarrassed to Ask. And it provides the answers to these crazy questions like, if soil is full of rotting plants and animals, why doesn't it smell? Another question that caught my attention is the question, can I eat it? So there's a lot of information here, as well as answers to these unconventional questions. In the shopping segment this week, I wanted to bring your attention to this really great online magazine that's called Aroma Culture. If you like essential oils, herbs, and natural living, you will love this magazine. It's about $6 a month, and it's a great addition to your plant medicine library. There were two items that made it into my inspiration segment this week. The first is this amazing picture of the wildflowers that are blooming in the desert. Arizona and California have had all of this rain, and all of the wildflower seeds have gotten watered. And they are just blooming like crazy. And this particular desert is about two hours away from San Diego. And you would not believe the blooms. Just a reminder that when Mother Nature wants to, she can outperform any of us on our best day. This picture looks so amazing. It looks like it could be a set for some type of Star Trek movie where they land on a plant-laden planet. It's that crazy. And then the other piece was a really nice video that was shared by one of our Facebook members in the Facebook group, and it's by Danny Perkins. 
And it's a video where he stitched together little pieces of footage featuring the butterflies that have visited his garden in the past year. It's really sweet. It's very inspiring. And I tell you, when I see things like this, it gets me very excited to garden again. I can't wait for spring. And then occasionally I share recipes, and I did find this really great article that was featured in the James Beard Foundation blog, and it's their guide to impromptu dinner parties. And over half of my dinner parties are impromptu, so this caught my attention. There are some great ideas in here, including a spaghetti with clam sauce. I'm excited to try that one. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup for this week. Again, you can find all of these posts in addition to other posts that make it into the Facebook group but don't make it into the Garden News Roundup. So if you liked this information and you'd like to read some of these articles for yourself, head on over to the Facebook group. Just look up Still Growing Podcast Group and request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, today's episode is all about schoolyard gardens, and it's featuring my guest, Rick Sherman. Rick is the Farm to School School Garden Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education, and he was recently the keynote speaker at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum for the fifth annual Schoolyard Gardens Conference. Now, Rick, to me, is a little bit of a renaissance man. He worked for 32 years for a food service management company. The last 20 of those years were spent as a director of nutrition services, which has really paid off in spades in terms of him being able to help people build relationships with the folks in the schools that are responsible for food service. Rick graduated from Western Washington University with a degree in education, and he's been a runner for almost 40 years, competing at a national level in the steeplechase, and he's been a high school track and cross-country coach for 20 years. He's a master gardener, he loves home brewing and riding dirt bikes, and he spends his spare time in his backyard garden and raising chickens. Anyway, I picked Rick's brain about what he was going to talk about at the Arboretum this past week and about his journey of the past five years being part of a team that's continued to put Oregon on the national map for farm to school. He started with these very small beginnings. You'll hear about this and his role in just hustling and getting this all put together. And now Oregon is a state that has millions of dollars in grant support and they attract hundreds to their annual summit. So let's get to it. Here's Rick Sherman, the Farm to School School Garden Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education. Good morning, Jennifer. Hey there, Rick. I'm so thrilled that I get a chance to speak with you. You're coming to town to the fifth annual Schoolyard Gardens Conference. It's at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum, and you're going to be the keynote speaker there. Why don't I have you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Are you excited to come to town tomorrow? I am, thanks. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to coming to Minnesota. Never been there. So, yeah, we'll cross that one off my bucket list. So, <laughs> but, <go>. yeah, <laughs> my name's Rick Sherman, and I'm the Oregon Farm to School and School Garden Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education. Okay, and how long have you been doing that job, Rick? Almost five years now. B- before that, I was a food service director for the better part of 32 years, the last 20 of those years in Oregon as a Oregon school food service director. Well, and who knew that that would dovetail so nicely with what you're currently doing? Because I've read well, a lot of your things online, and partnering with school food service directors is very important. It, it really is. And it, it's funny how that journey happened when the farm to school movement kind of started taking off about 
oh, I guess about 10 years ago, I became very passionate about farm to school, both about getting local food onto the cafeteria tray as well as school garden produce. And I was in a pretty progressive community, Eugene, that's where the University of Oregon is, as a food service director. And I had a pretty vocal parent group that was very passionate about these things. And and it you know really wasn't a big deal to me before then but then as i started working with this group it you know it kind of it created a monster i guess and i be you know one one thing led to another and i kind of became that crazy food service director who was really passionate about farm to school and the more i learned about it the more i wanted to you know i saw the value in it um i started volunteering in our school gardens i became a master gardener and then, as it, luck would have it, the Department of Ed was hiring this position that I that I applied. So I kind of had a big leap of faith and and quit my job and started doing this. And now it's like I have the best job in the world. I I, I always liked my job before, but now I mean I, I just I can't wait to go to work every day. Um, yeah. And it's been it's so great to do something you're passionate about. So. Yep. It doesn't feel like work then at all, does it? No, no, not at all. Well, and I read in your bio, I think you raise chickens. (laughs) Yeah, I do in my backyard. As a matter of fact, um, we've had a bunch of school gardens around Oregon that are starting to do that too. So I'm able to parlay that a little bit and I know where all my chicken gardens are and I'm able to support them as well. Chickens and bees, kind of the next step when people get tired of doing just fruits and veggies or whatever, they th- they think, what else can we do in the school garden? Huh, yeah. Very good point. You know, one of my earliest memories from, from kindergarten, I won't say how many years ago, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> I remember they brought an incubator in with eggs and we got to watch chickens hatch. I think we watched those little eggs for about two weeks. And I don't think we had the little chicks very long, and then they were whisked away. So we had a very abbreviated experience. But with what you're talking about, there's potential there for that to be kind of the whole life cycle, if you will. Yeah, it's another opportunity to learn for the kids to do something other than just raise veggies or whatever, which is is fine too. But um, it brings another aspect to the garden, which is really valuable. Yes. Are you currently a cross-country coach or you just did that for a very long time? Oh, I was I was a runner for 40 years. I just got a new hip installed, so not <laughs> not doing the running anymore. Okay. But uh, yeah, for the last 20 years, I was a track and cross country coach, and I I still dabble with one of my old schools that I was at. And I I go out and go on road trips with them and do cross country races. But I'm my I'm I'm retired from that pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Well, you must have a lot of energy, Rick, because you've done so many different things here. Are yeah, you high- ADHD can be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can. Do your friends marvel at what you're able to get done in any given week? Oh, I guess. I don't know. It's It, it seems pretty normal to me, but um, I'm able to channel my energy pretty well, I guess. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your presentation here. You know, one of the things that I liked about how they were introducing your keynote is it started out with a question. And the question was, do you feel that your school garden is an island among itself all alone? Right. This is a common sentiment for school gardens. Well, it it really is. And and even to back that up a step further, the first day in my job here at the Department of Ed, I, they showed me to my cubicle, and 
And I asked, my first question was, how many gardens do we have in our state? And I was told, oh, we don't know that. And you can't know that. It's too hard to figure out, so don't try. Oh, my. And so, like, never tell me I can't do anything, right? So, <laughs> we, I went about, and my first task was to figure out how many gardens we have in our state. So, I got our school list from Amity, Oregon, to Yoncala, Oregon, you know, and 1,300 schools. And I just started calling them one by one. Oh, wow. Um, and going to the school secretary and saying, hey, do you have, this is Rick with Department of Ed, do you have a school garden? And I found out how many gardens were in the state. It took about 20 minutes a day for three months to do that project. And then I think we ended up, we were at 238 at the time, but since then we've grown. Currently we're at 651 gardens in our state. So we were the only state that knew how many we had and where they were and a contact for each one. And since then, like like I, we were talking before the call, um, I mentored Nevada into doing the same thing. And so there's other, other states that call me all the time saying, how did you do that? But but in answer to your question, so now that we knew we had all these singular gardens and all of them felt very, very alone, we did a couple things. I emailed the entire state and said, hey, we're going to have a school garden summit, much like this one that we're going to talk about in, in Minnesota. But we were able to bring, you know, like reach out to everybody in the state and say, hey, we're, hey, we're going to be in Portland or Salem or where it is in, in Oregon. And we went from a meeting, a, a yearly gathering of like 40 or 50 people to 350 and 400 people, just like that. And oh, so wow. now that we had all these garden educators, the next step was to have some regional um, hubs where we got gathered everybody in, in, in different neighborhoods and had little clubs, if you will, uh, to do things. And so, so those those things um, kind of unified our state and, and by by the state level and the, and the city level or the county level, and people would go to these meetings and realize that they weren't alone, they could network, they met each other, and um, a lot of really neat things happened. Wow. So ne- the bottom line here is never tell a cross-country coach that they can't do something because <laughs> they're going to outrun you. Right. <laughs> That's right. Wow. So I suppose if somebody was going to attempt this, one of the things that you might suggest is not only that they figure out, does the school have a schoolyard garden, but uh-huh. also the contact information so that you can do these future networking yep. things with them. Otherwise, you've got to go back yep. and then try to get that information. Yep. I have got asked the question of how, how can we do this, what you did, and I do have some advice. I would say like surveys and things like that aren't that well received and people don't answer them and they don't like doing that. So uh, I think the phoning was a really good opportunity. However, like if it's a really big, huge state like a California or Texas or whatever, you might want a couple interns to help do mm-hmm. that. I did it all on my own pretty much. I think about 95% of it. So there is that. But once you got it, see, I, I found out if they had it. And uh, do you know your? Do you know who's in charge? And if they knew, I would I would get their email address. But if not, I would circle back. But um, that was really valuable to get a contact. Yeah. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about the profile of these folks. So you're starting to accumulate names and numbers. 
What did you find out about that population of people that are in charge of schoolyard gardens? Are they master gardeners? Are they, you know, folks that are running an extracurricular activity and then they say, hey, take over the schoolyard garden? Who are these people? That's that's a fabulous question because and we as our, our Oregon Farm to School and School Garden Network, I want it's important to bring that up because it's not just myself that runs the farm to school. I have a counterpart with the Department of Ag. Oh. Her name is Amy, and then um, we're one of the only state one of the only states that have a Department of Ed and a Department of Ag. I work from the schools out, and she works from like outside. Farmers, ranchers, producers, and so it's kind of we get them from both ways. Hmm. And then we have we have a nonprofit Oregon Farm to School and School Garden Network, and we have a, a director there that's that's full time, and we have a bunch of people in nonprofits that help out do legislation and stuff like that. So it's it's a good it's a team of folks. So having said that, when we reached out and and talked to these people, we had some goals of okay, we have garden, now we can collect data. Like, do you use your school garden produce in the cafeteria? Do you have a paid position? Do you you have regularly scheduled garden-based education taking place in your garden? Do you have a garden in each county, which we finally got that checked off the list. But so in answer to your question about what the makeup is of the people and our goals, we found out it's it's really there's no cookie cutter way to do things, but probably about less than ten percent, probably around five percent of our gardens have a paid school garden position, and that's really a problem with the whole United States. I mean that we ha- mostly have volunteer folks that that run our garden. In a lot of cases, it's a volunteer parent, and and when their kid graduates, they graduate with the kid too. So you, you always have to have somebody in the wings. Sometimes it's a, you know, like an Oregon State University extension person that helps, you know, they have a grant to run. Sometimes there's a nonprofit, like we have a nonprofit called Growing Gardens in Portland that they do educational programming with the Portland school districts. And so they supply people. Or in Eugene, we have a school garden project of Lane County that they have garden educators and they, they contract with the schools to run the gardens. But mostly it's just like it could be a teacher. Um, those are really neat situations that they have, they run all their science experiments in their garden because you can teach any subject in the garden. Yes. So it's really a hodgepodge, but mostly it's a volunteer basis thing. I would say the biggest majority. Is that its parent volunteer, you mean? I would say so, yeah. It okay. would be a volunteer situation, yeah. Okay. All right. When you think about the next tagline for your presentation, it said, Rick will show you how to unite your school garden movement in your neighborhood, city, and state in seven steps. Can you give us a brief walkthrough of how to do that? Yep. And I've given this this talk before, so it's kind of ingrained in me. So yeah, no problem. (laughs) The first one is uh, define. I would say define who your people are, who your gardens are. In my case, I mapped out our garden and found that we have now 651 school gardens. So define who who they are. My next step is to network, and that involves we did our school garden summit. I invited everybody together, and we did, like I said, the, the regional school garden hubs. So 
Um, in my case, I did a pilot in my hometown, and I gathered, I invited all the school garden people in the county to one elementary school, and they didn't even know each other. And okay. now they're best, they're best friends. And so that was our first hub. And then what they decided to do was, let's have a school garden lunch day, and we'll take pictures, and we'll do a school board presentation. And so we, we showed up at a school board, and our school board members said, we have gardens. They didn't even know, you know. So now, as a result of that, we grew four gardens in that district within a couple months because it was so popular. So that that um, before everyone thought they were by themselves. So okay. and then after that, they met each other and they're a team. They were able to share starts together, share food together on the delivery okay. truck. So so anyway, define and network and then So you're really helping them organize themselves into some type of coherent well, and then, fashion. Yeah, exactly. And then step away. Let let them do their thing. I don't want to run their meetings. I'll I'll, I'll okay. run their first one. But exactly. Let them once they got unified, it was a beautiful thing. So and like right now we have eleven hubs all over our um state that are that are pretty much representing most of our areas where I'm pretty proud of it. So, okay. so yeah. Okay. And then they can share best practices among themselves, basically. Well, and, and right. That was what I said. The next step is to do stuff. And okay. that means like, um, don't just get together for coffee, but what do you want? What do you want to do as a team? And like they did field trips. They did the biggest help I've seen is have school board presentations. Mm. I actually had a admin member from a big town in Oregon say that, and this is kind of a common thing, they say, you know, gardens are pretty and they're nice things, but they're really not necessary and I don't want to support them because they don't help our graduation rate, the guy said. But So we're figuring out if you do stuff and like don't do anything in your garden without it relating to your standards and stuff and show your school board how you can teach any subject in your garden and how um, these kids have, you know, like, oh, uh, for an example, we had one school that had to put in an irrigation line and they could have just put in a work order to have their facilities department do it. But they had their kids come out and bring out their calculators and figured out the displacement of the dirt that was going to go out and the amount of water going to each plant. And they did these big sheets of paper that had a hypothesis on it. And then, then they did, you know, like they did the work or have had a work order, but nothing happens in the garden without relating to an education lesson. And then they show that to the school board or, or they leave the posters on the garden as you walk by coming into school and they see that. So it's been really handy. Um, and that was why in this town we grew so many gardens. So anyway, um, define network, do stuff, then report. Like I said, report when you're doing something and invite people, invite school board members, invite your newspaper, invite your local congressman, whatever, to, your, to let them know what cool things are going on in your garden. And then you develop relationships. We, um, I was at one hub meeting and there was a stranger there in the garden and we're going around introducing and we've come to find out and he goes, yeah, my name is Vince and I'm a school board member. For, so we have started having school board members show up at our garden meetings. So when you develop relationships and this guy said, 
He goes, what do you guys want to do? And, and I'm nudging him saying, ask for a paid position. He goes, <laughs> you know, just ask. We, we, we might not give you full FTE, but we'll give you something. So those, that, that relationship, relationship would have never happened without the hub meeting and, and inviting people or whatever. But, um, so develop relationships is huge. And then, um, like I said, relate everything you do to standards of your school, whatever that may be, and then have an ask. Just once you have everything, then um, like, what 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 do you want? Do you want a paid position? Do you want to uh, money to expand your garden? You know, like start thinking about some of those things. Mm. So that's that's it in a nutshell in a an hour talk in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you know, what you were talking about here, there were a couple of things that came to mind for me. One is that very last thing you talked about, which is having an ask, which sometimes seems very obvious, right? Oh, I'm going to ask for a paid position. But people can struggle sometimes with putting together an ask, especially when, you know, they're not quite sure how far they can go with a volunteer type position because these are so predominantly volunteer. And it reminds me of this conversation. I have a friend who works with women entrepreneurs and she was talking to them about creating a premium offer to their clients, like a a sky's the limit offer, something that Mm -hmm. a client would pay a lot of money to do with them. And when we were talking about it, she's like, women really struggle with this because it's the big ask. It's it's bigger than normal. And they're never quite sure, you know, will people pay me for this? And I'm wondering if you find it's the same thing, you know, in schoolyard gardens. Do people struggle to maybe have a very elaborate, big vision of what they can do in the garden? Because, you know, they're thinking, oh, it's volunteer. Yeah. There, You know, I, there's just limited resources. I, you know, that kind of island thinking comes back right. into play. Do you find that? And how do you help people with that? Yeah. Yes and no. I, I have, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. You know, you're not going to get a yes if you don't ask, right? You never know. And it's right. what's the worst that can happen. People will just say, huh, no, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> yeah. but, um, for, for instance, I have had people that say, you know, woe is us. We live in a poor community. We, that costs a lot of money. I don't know how um, to get a garden started. And then I've had people that live in a less than a fluent community and they basically knock on doors, talk to businesses. Um, they have this can do attitude. This one gal, um, it was our 500th school garden actually in, in Oregon. She raised 30,000 bucks in a few months in a pretty poor town just by knocking on doors and not taking no for an answer. She, you just have to appreciate this, this woman. She was just has so much gumption. You know, uh, we had two legislators at a groundbreaking for her garden. Actually, you walk into the school and it says painted on the wall. It says, welcome to Oregon's 500 school garden in big, you know, oh my four gosh. foot letters. I know it's just amazing. Well, they, she had her, her two legislators in the, in the building and we had a lunch from garden produce um, on the tray and, and she goes up to the guy and they're they're trying to get reelected and trying to raise money and for their their own cause but she's like so how much can i put you down for for our garden and the one guy looks at her and goes 
I'll give you 500 and so will my friend here. You know, <gasps> he, he volunteered. The other. Fantastic. So she, just by asking, there was a thousand bucks she That's got. That's right. And just, you know, she just is not shy about that. And if she could do it in that community, anybody could. And, you know, you just have to have a can-do attitude. You know, it was, yeah. it was amazing. It was really inspirational to see. Wow. You know, I'm also very curious about the role social media can play in terms of getting the word out, creating positive image and reputation for schoolyard gardens. Have you seen social media play an important role for some of these gardens in Oregon? Sure. And, and I think we've just just starting to scratch the surface there. I have limitations on my role as a state employee uh, okay. to use social social media. I wish I could do it more. I would be really into that. But I've seen a lot of cases like Eugene School District, Portland Public School District, and you know some different school districts in Oregon that their nutrition services department will take pictures of their local lunches and post them on Facebook every you know every week. Say. You know, this, these are coming from this, this, and this farm. You know, we have, you know, all of this wonderful school garden produce or whatever. Um, a lot of school garden hubs and things are having their own um, social media going on. It's just finding the audience, you know, to, to get there. I know we have in Oregon, we, we've done some, um, with our Department of Ag, we've done some commercials lately about farm to school. Oh. And we've had some, yeah, we've had some people step up and some sponsorships step up. And so we've had some, a little bit of um, airtime. And I guess then we get a lot of hits with that stuff when we get on our on our commercials and, and things like that. We've had some TV shows and stuff where myself and Amy have been guests on and we've been able to talk about farm to school on our local affiliate or local ABC affiliate. And that's been really nice. So, but we've had other people that have put that together, not myself. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun to be a part of that. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about those commercials because I'm sure as people are hearing that they're thinking, "Oh my gosh, commercial about what? What is the what is the ask in the commercial? Is it just to raise awareness or are you looking for funding? What is the point of the commercial that that you were using in your right. state?" Right. Um well, well the the main focus of the commercials have been to highlight Oregon agriculture. And like how Oregon agriculture is great for our economy and it ends up on the school lunch tray and and it's great. And we might either have some commercials, but not only that, we'll have like guest appearances, local chefs cooking and doing things with like local cranberries, local pears, local, you know, and they'll they'll cut to a little visit to a local farm with those items. um, And then they'll come back and they'll, they'll do a little recipe the show that this happens a lot is our a local show called the AM Northwest, and it's on our local ABC affiliate. But and again, it's to uh, highlight Oregon agriculture. And then we have, um, like I said, a, a pretty big sponsor that's been uh, saw the value in that and and has helped with that. So and and then we've done, like I said, some commercials where we'll have our director of the Department of Ag standing on a tractor saying, "Hey, Oregon." You know, Oregon um, agriculture is great, and and uh, it, and it's just bringing more awareness to, you know, keep our dollars in state. So. 
Well, when I think of of any type of new venture, I always break it into three components. The first is people, the second is process, and then the third is performance. So when we think about schoolyard gardens in terms of people, I'm sure that there are a number of people that would be interested in assisting with a schoolyard garden, but they maybe don't feel qualified to get involved. How do you address that? How do we how do we get people kind of brought into it and and teach them along the way? Yes, I get that. Very good question. And I am that person too. I mean, if I could do it, anyone can do, can do it. Just because I'm a master gardener doesn't necessarily mean I know everything. The first thing I found out when I went through that process is we're all learning. And yeah, and I've had people that were just it was a wonderful, beautiful thing that they said, you know, I want to start a school garden, but I don't have a green thumb. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, neither do we, you know, and we'll be <laughs> the, right there with you making mistakes. And and the best advice I give to them, as I said, you need to come to one of our garden hub meetings. This, this was in the county I lived in. And she met everybody and everybody helped her, you know, and then we had a work party and we had the newspaper show up to build some raised beds. And hey, you know, yeah, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to kill plants. You're going to overwater, underwater, whatever, but that's how you learn. And so that's, that's the fun part of it. And the, the good thing is the kids learn right with you. And, you know, you don't need any prerequisites to do this stuff. There's so much help out there. And just, you know, from school garden websites to your, your comrades and, you know, me, whatever, you know, whatever okay. it takes, we won't let you fail. But yeah, that's that. I get that all the time. And then in terms of continuity, when we're speaking about people, you know, one of the the pushbacks that you can get from schools, I imagine, is that, hey, you know, we'd love to do this, but when you're gone, who's going to take care of it? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. most successful gardens, do they involve teams? Are we talking about teams of people? I, I would say so. I think you're putting yourself up to fail if you are, you could, let me put it this way. If you're the garden coordinator and you don't like to delegate and you want to do it all yourself, you're probably going to get burned out a bit. You better have some friends. Um, that would be my advice to just help you out. However, like in my hometown where I lived, we had a, a garden startup at the elementary school. So I made it a point to join their team, their club, because I wanted to support support the garden. And what they did there in the summer, you know, that's when everything's growing here in Oregon and as it is in Minnesota. You know, we have a short-ish growing season too. But but what we did was, okay, we all took a week in the summer and we, or actually two weeks, and we like watered and weeded and brought food to the school, um, the summer lunch program or the food bank or whatever and had kids come in and help or whatever, but we just we just divvied up all the weeks in the summer so the school garden coordinator could take a break and just like, I'm going to go on vacation. Like, great, you guys go away and we'll take care of it. So that was a really neat, neat thing to do. And that was, like you said, it was a team of people and it, it works better when you, the more people you get in. And, so, and sometimes also... Teachers get intimidated. They think, oh, you know, I would like to bring my class in, but it's the garden coordinator's area. So okay. it, the ones that work really well are the, the groups that work together as a team. So they all 
pitch in and stuff. Well, and everybody's been, or everybody who has gardened for a period of time has maybe run into someone who is a little proprietary about a garden, if it's a public garden or, a, or a private garden. <laughs> yes. How does that get addressed? Because that can turn people off, right? If If you just feel like... You're not going to be allowed to maybe have a little autonomy or there's, you know, so many constraints yeah. around it. How do you address well, that to keep it more well, of an and, open you know, system? Sure. I think that's going to happen at times because people are people and you have different leadership styles. Yes. And it would just be my advice to try to try to I mean you, you do need someone in charge of yes. the garden you need to you need like that's one thing I say in my garden food safety protocol manual on my website which I think we talked about before the call but that's one thing I say like when the health the, the if a health inspector comes and looks at food in the cafeteria and they want to know where the food came from it's good to have somebody like the buck stops here I'm in yes. charge of the garden and so that that's a good thing but other than that, I would just really highly recommend that it's a team concept of like, you know, hey, you know, here's a bed for first grade. What first graders, what do you want to plant in there? I you know, um, you know, or whatever. Don't don't just make it my garden. It's the school's garden. That's that's my advice. But, you know, I think there are different styles and, um, I've, you know, no two gardens are the same. That's right. That's right. Well, in terms of process... As you were talking about some of the things that are happening in your state, I was imagining if we were creating this here in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, I would be looking to try to integrate the schoolyard garden into processes and systems that already exist. So, for instance, we have a parent-teacher organization. Can we somehow get schoolyard gardens as a standing agenda item so that it's already woven in, those meetings are already happening, and you know we could have a, a place there? Or, for instance, school board meetings, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend that as well, like trying to just integrate schoolyard gardens into existing processes that exist in schools? Sure. I just had a parent volunteer come to me um, a couple weeks ago about getting a garden started with that same, same end in mind, like, how do, how do I get started? And so what we did, um, another, another step we did is I, I facilitate meetings with the principal, you know, and like try to, you know, if the, if the principal isn't on board, it ain't going to happen. If the if the grounds and facilities people don't know or aren't comfortable with it, it's not a good thing. So meetings are good. And then she did that exact same thing. She was a member of their parent teacher association. So she brought that up like, Hey, PTA or PTC or whatever it was, I'm going to do this. So what do you guys think? There's resources they have. They might have volunteers, you know, they have parents, they have, might have cash, who knows? So that's a really good support network to tie into things like that. So exactly. Okay. In terms of resistance, how do you overcome that? So you have a facilities person or you have a food service director or you have a principal. Is it just you wear them down over time? Is it you're building a case? <laughs> what do you do? How do you convince people yeah. that it's a it, worthy thing to do? Usually it, um, the food service director and principal are afraid about liability. That's their thing. They think that it's not safe to have school garden produce. So what we did is we developed a 
garden food safety training and documentation manual. We have it on our Oregon Farm to School website, and um, and it's available to download for free. But and I can send you the link to that, um, so you could have it. It's a new. We have a new website up, and the old one is still active, but it's going away. Okay. So it's a little confusing to get to, but. Anyway, that addresses that. Usually the the health inspector that inspects the food in the cafeteria, they don't care where the food comes from, but be it the, CIF, the Cisco truck or the school garden, they just want to make sure the food is handled correctly. Okay. So we've had all our, our state association, our um, health inspectors sign off on it, as well as people from all over the country. It's been a really wonderful thing. So that's the number one thing we could say, you know what? It's legal in Oregon to serve school garden produce. You know, every state should check, you know, their own their own statutes. But it's not the same for other items like meat, shellfish, eggs, poultry, canned items, those kind of things. But produce, it is. So, so that's the main thing. And then facilities, things like, you know, things to think about, like, where am I going to get my water from? Yes. Um, what is going, where, if I'm going to compost... You know, uh, where is that going to be? Because it can be smelly in the spring and summertime and you don't want it near the building, you know. So things like that. So it's really good just to meet with those guys and get their buy-in, not just do things yourself and make them mad. Yes. Yeah. So have them part of the process. And how are most schools handling water? Or do you have a recommended way that you promote for people who are starting out? How do they handle it? Well, I would recommend like when you're, if you're, if you're just starting a garden, if it's already established, you know, it, it is where it is. But on this one where we went a couple of weeks ago, we toured the grounds and like, where is your water located? Because you're going to have to water. So what's the best way to do that? And so we wanted to have the garden more or less near where you can put a 50 foot hose or whatever. So, um, so you wouldn't have to carry water. You know, that's a, that's a concern. You have to think about where this, you know, um, is it going to get some sunlight? Is it totally shaded year round? Things like that. You don't need to have a lot of knowledge, but just some basic, basic things like sunlight, water, you know, and how's the dirt and things like that. You know, if it's just clay, rock hard or, or whatever. So just some things like that. And do you ever see, because you've built this momentum and you've organized these these gardens with the hubs and everything, do you ever have a school-initiated request for a garden? So, for instance, a principal calls you and says, we want to do this. How do we get started? Do yeah. you ever see that? Sure, sure, all the time. And that, and that's my my next thing is, like, great, principal, who's going who's gonna to run it? And then, like, well will worry about that or they'll have somebody in, in mind or whatever, but I get it from both ends sometimes, sometimes from the administration, sometimes from a parent, you know, and I haven't been able to not make it work yet. I mean, I've been oh, able really? to, you know, when there's a request, um, I'm able to get people to, you know, it, it's all about educating people, you know, of like how it can be done. So. You know, one thing I hear in Minnesota all the time with regard to schoolyard gardens is the fact that by the time the kids are out of school, that's peak time in the garden. And then by the time they're returning to school, the garden's wrapping up. How do we address that kind of concern with people? Well, and and that's the same. I mean, Oregon is a really, it's kind of different over here. We have a mountain range running down the middle of the state, the Cascades. Yeah, we have another little range on the Pacific Coast. But basically, if you put a shovel in the ground on the 
on the west side of the state, you can grow anything. It's really, it's, it's pretty easy. It's a Willamette Valley, we call it. Wow. And anybody can grow things there. It's very fertile. On the east side, like Two-thirds of the state is probably more like Minnesota or, or Nevada or something. It's very inhospitable to grow things. You put a shovel in the ground and it goes clank. Oh, you know, okay. There's just not, not much there. And it's very, it's it's high desert or, you know, or whatever. But um, so you can grow anything anywhere. You just might need some help. So even so on the west side, we still have a relatively short growing season. You know, you're talking... May, June, July, August, September, October, you know, and those are the times when things are really growing. But, you know, what what a lot of schools do is in the spring when they want a quick turnaround and something that can bear fruit, so to speak, they do things that grow really fast in like cold weather things like some lettuces and things like that and radishes that grow relatively fast. So there's some turnaround that they can have, you know, um, they can harvest and, and eat. And then they might grow things that will they can harvest in the fall, like tomatoes and warmer weather things, too. So when they come back in the fall, there's a lot of stuff. There's, you know, they can they can do a lot of their gourds and and squash and tomatoes and, you know, and things like that and peas and beans and all that stuff. And summer, when everything's going game busters, like I said, they might I've seen we've had summer camps, we've had summer garden camps, we've had you know, like some summer food service, summer lunch programs that take advantage of the food or food banks or, you know, you know, there's, there's lots of things going on, but hopefully things will happen. Some people walk away from their garden and then come back in the fall, you know, and then start it up again too. I mean, depending on, you know, their time constraints and things. So I think there's no one way to do things. How about uh, hoop houses, things like that? I just interviewed Josh Volk of Compact Farms, and he brought up the fact that he's got a friend who doesn't garden during the summer. He waits to start in the fall, and then he's got a hoop house, and he gardens when, or he farms, gardens, what have you, when everyone else is usually packed up and done. That's his growing season. Do you see that? Like simple little hoop houses. and as a matter of fact, some of my friends in Minnesota, Andrea Northrop, who used to be be there, and Bertram, who is still there now at uh, Minneapolis Public Schools, I believe. But I've seen pictures from Minnesota of gardens and with feet of snow. You know, gardens are in hoop houses there. So, you know, like I said, we in Oregon on our eastern side, if they want to garden there, you you need to do some things because, like right now, eastern Oregon, it has probably three feet of snow all over the place. We've had a really oh. big snow year, which has been really good because we're in the middle of this big drought kind of thing. So we have lots of snowpack this year, which is which is awesome. But we have some pictures, and I'll share some at the school garden gathering in in Minnesota too. But on our eastern side, where we have hoop houses, and that they are able to do things in the winter or have indoor hydroponic gardens. Or whatever, but that's the thing. You can garden anywhere, but you just might need some help, you know, from the elements and things like that. I love that. Well, Rick, I'm I'm happy to share with you that there's not a drop of snow on the ground, and we've been having record warm temperatures. So I think you're going to have a lovely I, time out here. I've been monitoring the weather because, <laughs> and it's about like it is in, in where I'm living at right now, just cold and wet, you yeah. know, kind of and. And I'm like, oh, this is like Oregon, but uh, everyone's saying, oh, it's going to be below zero. And oh, really? Well, not, not this week. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I tell you what, we're very dry right now. We we just don't have we have no snowpack. We were supposed to get wow. 20 inches of snow here last week that just never materialized and things just dried up. So instead of having that kind of wet, sloshy spring that we typically have, we're dry as a bone. Can't believe it. Well, good. Yeah. So well, not good. I well, guess you know you need to, you need the the snow for the summer too, but That's true. Well, it's great for the mudrooms and the moms. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when you've got a lot of kids trooping in and out, but it's not so great for the outside sometimes. So, yeah, for sure. Let's see. I was going to ask you about grants. In mm-hmm. one of your presentations, there was just page after page of all of these awarded grants for different gardens around your state. How do people right. even begin this process of trying to get grants? Is it is it a complicated yeah. process? Or get it, getting one established in your state. Yeah. I get calls from all over the country about that. Yeah. We currently have a grant right now we're running. It's four and a half million dollars. You know, we didn't start out there. Uh, we started when I first got here in 2012, you know, five years ago. It was, I think we asked for something crazy like 50 million and we got $200,000. You know, just we got a little bit, but we got a, that for, for the first biennium I was here. And then the next one, it moved up to $1.2 million. Oh, that's great. And then and then the current one we're in now, that 1.2 rolled over and we, we ran it again, but they also gave us $3.3 million more from this, what they call a Christmas tree fund. And so now we're up to that total is $4.5 million. And so the good news is, I mean, we, we're wrapping that up. It ends in June. And then the next biennium, we're going through a billion-dollar budget cut. And they're looking to cut spending and that in particular. However, we have some legislatures, and particularly the one that introduced this, who is a farmer. And we have a lot of passionate legislators that are passionate about farm to school. It's a very popular thing here. It's always passed unanimously. So we're holding our breath now because they have it introduced again, and they they are adamant about finding a way to make it work moving forward. But what the grant is for currently, 80% of that $4.5 million is to to reimburse school districts for buying organ-grown or organ-processed food, and that's a non-competitive grant available to all Oregon school districts. And then um, the other 20% of the grant is a competitive grant for um, school districts, nonprofits, and commodity commissions like, you know, Oregon Troll Commission, Oregon Hazelnuts, you know, Oregon Blueberries, whatever. But for them to work with school districts to educate them about this produce, we found that if you put local, healthy, fresh food in front of kids, they may or may not eat it, but if you teach them about it, they tend to devour the food. So between the two grants, we're very proud of it and excited. We ha- we've been able to show some really good results. Mm, absolutely. Now, do you ever have gardens that start with maybe container gardening or straw bale gardening instead of doing flat earth, maybe something that's kind of somewhat temporary, yeah. you know, to kind of ease into maybe a more permanent type of garden on the property? Yep, absolutely. And I, I'm always a big proponent for start out 
small. Start out to what you can handle. Don't bite off more than you can chew, so to speak. So okay. um, then that might be just a windowsill garden or a container garden or, you know, just a couple planters or whatever. And then when you got that down, then do a little raised bed and then a couple raised beds and then, you know, go from there, you know. So definitely we have, all, there's not one cookie cutter way to do a garden, you know. Um, we have in Oregon, we have rooftop gardens. We have a cranberry bog school garden Ugh. down on the on the south coast. Actually, that's not true. It because of our drought, it dried up and they converted it to a chicken farm. So school garden chicken farm. So, but um, like just goes to show more diversity in the garden. So there's not one way to do things. And I love getting out to see what folks can do. It's that's a lot of fun. Yeah, the, I mean, the options are completely endless. Do you ever have folks that do some type of GoFundMe for fundraising? If they don't go the grant route and they don't, they're don't, they not door knocking, have they ever tried to enlist some type of crowdfunding? Sure. You know, there, there's a lot of that to compete with, I think. And I, that's one of the tools in the toolbox, so to speak. I think probably the biggest help I've seen school gardens in Oregon do is just doing some, not like some big grants, although there are those too, but just going to some companies like your Home Depot or your Lowe, and they'll give you a $50 card. Going to the local nursery, they'll give you a hundred bucks of in-kind stuff or, or whatever. They'll give you workers. So a lot of that success story, certainly the crowdfunding and stuff might work. I wouldn't say that would be I wouldn't want to put all your eggs in one basket, but yep. um, that might that might help as well too. Sure. And how about enlisting secondhand things, like maybe through Craigslist, in terms of sourcing things that these gardens need with the budget in mind? Is that a commonly used resource for gardens? Sure, sure. Either either that, or even like a note to all the parents: Hey, do you have any? unused garden equipment that you don't need anymore. Do you have an extra mm. rake or some trowels or, or things like that? Just have a little drive to get equipment and stuff like that. Sure, that would work too. Oh, I love that idea. I love the idea of a garden drive. That sounds great. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about resources that people can get for free on your website because you've devised all these checklists and best practices that you share with people, what is commonly available there and what would you steer people toward in terms of resources that you've put together through the years? A couple things in like getting started with school gardens, we talked about like some of the tips like about what what about watering? What about, I, I do have a little pamphlet on there calling tips on how to start a school garden. And so that's kind of little front and back page thing that um, I did when I first started out this it's been very helpful that and then the other thing on the garden food safety tab is the garden food safety training and documentation manual that helps I really recommend that it kind of covers yourself when you're doing things like if you follow the principles in the manual you will minimize risks you can't totally eliminate them but if you know what you're doing and have a solid system and plan and document it, then you can kind of prove that you're trying to minimize them as best you can. So those are my two biggest things I could say that are helped just like, you know, starting out in the right way and then just reading the manual and, and uh, going from there. Cause there, there's a lot of manuals out there 
Um, but mine, the one that we did, I think is the only one that has more of a documentation aspect to it that you're like doing a startup checklist and a yearly checklist and you're testing your soil um, when you start out. So, you you know, for pathogens and, and heavy metals and things like that. And you're teaching your kids how to wash your hands if you're harvesting food. And, and so you could show that to a health inspector and then they're good, good with things. Okay. So kind of more or less a business plan for your school garden. Right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Okay. All right. How about other resources that, that you like to maybe check out, whether it's somebody that you follow on social media or other states that you think have good resources to reference? Is there anyone that you kind of look up to or kind of keep your eye on throughout the year? Oh, man, I do really like, I enjoy the gatherings. when We have a national gathering Every two years, the garden cafeteria gathering that we do this year, we had it in Madison, Wisconsin, and then it'll be every other year. So that's every other summer. And that's that's one where a couple thousand people get together and they're all school garden folks. So it's like my Christmas, you know, getting together with friends. And then there's another one called the National Children and Youth Garden Symposium. And it's put on by the American Horticulture Society. That's every summer. And this summer, it's going to be July 12th through 15th in um, Portland. And actually, oh, wow. I'm, I'm going to be hosting a school garden tour on the 12th uh, of that. So Portland, Vancouver area. Vancouver is just across the river here in, in Washington. So um, pretty much the same town, Portland and Vancouver. But um, so it's like Minneapolis and St. Paul, right? That's right. So, That's um, right. So I like those opportunities to get together and learn. And we don't have very many on the West Coast, so I'm looking forward to this summer. So we're going to take advantage of it. Yeah. I like that. Well, Rick, I can't let you go without having you offer a piece of advice maybe to someone who's listened to all of this and just doesn't even know where to start. But before I do, I have kind of a squirrely question for you. There, The headshot image of you for the Schoolyard Gardens <laughs> Conference here in Minnesota shows a, uh, is it a rooster or a chicken on your shoulder? And I know that... That, you, <laughs> that would me. be ginger. Ginger. That would be ginger, my chicken. Um <laughs> <laughs> who just passed away this year. Very um, because, well, I know I get a lot of mileage out of that picture. Let me tell you, it's my, it's my Facebook uh, profile. It's you know, all of the conferences I've ever spoke at and stuff. But no, it was, it was a cute one. Um, Ginger was, I have usually six or seven chickens at a time and Ginger, for whatever reason, thinks I'm mom and oh. it's always popping up in my lap and wants to be cuddled. It's oh, you're just kidding. really weird because most chickens don't want anything to do with you. They want to be fed and they kind of keep arm's length away, but not this one. This one kind of thought I was mom. So, but yeah, so it, it would pop up on my shoulder there and um, I got that shot and it was the money shot. So I thought, what a great farm to school shot. So yeah, that, that was her. Yeah, it's a great, well, a nice eulogy there. It's a it's a nice uh, picture, and your expression is perfect because you kind of, she's looking at you, you're looking at her, you're gazing I into know. each other's eyes. It's just the perfect picture. I loved yeah. it. Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so give us that parting piece of wisdom for someone who's, you know, just overwhelmed or maybe just has that shiny object syndrome, doesn't quite know where to start, just reeling with ideas. 
where, how, yeah, where would you, well, what I'd would say, you tell them? What would, what would be your inspirational words for them? I would say, cheer up. You're not alone. You know, it would be nice if, you know, in my state, it's pretty easy that they could find out their nearest neighbor and say, oh gosh, there's another, there's more people like you. So once you figure out, like if you have a couple friends that have school gardens in your city, that would be the best thing to do and just get together and have coffee with them and like, you know, get a support group. You know, like everyone will meet obviously this week, which will be after this broadcast, but everyone will get together. That's a really good opportunity. And I'm sure I'll say something uh, to the crowd there, but that that's a really good opportunity to get to know each other. Mm. And the, some of the parts are greater than the, uh, right. You know, how does that go? The, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yes. Mm-hmm. Correct. Thank you. And for, no man is an Island, other. right. Thanks to John Dunn. Exactly. So that's right. So that would be my best tip to say, you know, you're not in this alone. You just have to find a support group. And I think that's the best way to go about doing things. You know, if, if that's a club in your own, you know, gather some other parents or whatever, or in your own school and then going from there. But especially in your own town, you know, as far as a regional hub or something, that that would be my best advice. Well, and you mentioned the word club, Rick. Are garden clubs across the country involved in, in mm-hmm. schoolyard gardens? That's kind of a new one on me, really. It's kind of stumping me because I haven't really seen a lot of that. I know we do have, I guess the best thing I've seen, there's been some listservs out there, like of garden educators, but they're kind of hit and miss, you know, like there might be kind of a broad general thing. Um, we do have a couple of those in Oregon too, of Oregon farm school, school garden educators and things, some things like that where they could at least talk. You know, I betcha, you know, in your neck of the woods, you could figure out something like that too. I haven't seen a lot of that nationwide. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. There's a new direction or a new idea for folks. There you go. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I think you provided a lot of great information and huge amounts of inspiration for states to use you guys as a role model for how to coordinate all of these individual schoolyard gardens across the state. I think it's a great, great model to follow. Okay. And I emailed you a link to the website we were talking about too. So Oh, that's great. Now, are you going to have any handouts at your presentation this week? Nope, wasn't planning on it. My presentation is pretty much, I like to be not boring. So I have pictures, a lot of pictures, and maybe a word or two, but not a lot of killing trees or doing things like that. And I refer people to where to find things, which is usually my website. So that's where it's the Oregon Farm to School and School Garden website. It's ran by the Oregon Department of Education. And the string is about three pages long right now. We just are in process of moving to this new system and new vendor that provides our our website. So if you Google Oregon Farm to School, you're probably going to go to the old one, which is unfortunate. That's why I do have one I made a little shortcut I gave you, but that's the best way to get to it at this moment until the old one disappears in a couple months. Okay. So, so if folks are interested, they can just go to the show notes for this episode and and yeah. click on that link and that'll take it right to the new one. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you. Ugh, Rick, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to meeting you when you're in Minnesota. My pleasure. Can't wait to go.
Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Rick Sherman, the Farm to School School Garden Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education. And don't forget, I will put a link to the Oregon Department of Education's Farm to School website. This will be their new website. I will put it in the Facebook group and I will also put it in the show notes for this episode so you will have access to all of that. I want to thank my lab members, my listener advisory board members. These are folks from the Still Growing Podcast group that have volunteered to help me for a four-month period of time, giving input to the show, helping me stay very listener-directed. And they are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh. She gardens in northern Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Fairbanks von Aachen, Patricia Chandler Newport. She's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens in Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants and a guest of the Still Growing podcast back in episode 553. I also want to thank my team at Podfly Productions. Ein Kadena is my copywriter. David Gregerson is my project manager. And Eric Baget is filling in for David Myers as my editor this week. These guys do a great job and I could not get the show out on a regular basis without their help. So thank you so much, you guys. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that Rick shared on the show today over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. So it's the number six, F is in Frank, T is in Tom, M-A-M-A.com. And then just click on podcast and this episode will pop right up and you'll see all of the show notes. And don't forget, I'd love to see you in the listener community for the show. It's the free Facebook group, a place for listeners of the show and guests of the show. And you can find it by going to my website and then clicking on the link for Facebook group right in the top menu. Or you can go to Facebook and the next time you're there, just type in still growing podcast group. The group will pop right up and then just request to join. Well, I hope you have a lovely week and that you get to spend a little bit of time outside. Thanks again for listening to the show. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.